you do know that Jeff and, and I will edge you out, though, whatever you had in mind. <laughs> oh, yeah. So welcome, everybody. This is the Fred and Jeff Show. This is Fred Bronson. I'm here with my little brother, Jeffrey. Hola, Tucson. And we're celebrating the people, the places, the events, history, and culture that make living in Tucson and Southern Arizona so gosh darn wonderful, Jeff. And Fred, it's so good to see you uh, because I don't really get to see you a lot yeah. anymore. Well, we invite you for, to come up for cigars all the time, and you always blow us off. So No, that's not true. That's not true. I love to go hang out with you and your buddies and have a cigar so I can find out what the uh, you know what the inside skinny of the city of Tucson is. Yeah, we, we make all that up. That's all made up stories. Mm, I, I believe that. Yeah, in that some I ways we're, we're like Big Jim Griffith. We uh, we're developing our own folklore, right, for the future of the community. Really? Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. So, what, what, how would you like to be remembered? We'll work on that. Yeah. Uh, I would like to be remembered as a good-looking man <laughs> with uh, very few. But there will be pictures. We can't. We can't delete all the pictures. <laughs> with very oh, few, uh, oh, you know, stop. issues. Lots of friends, you know, just, you know, just your basic Santa Claus kind of personality kind of guy. Yeah, okay, we'll do that. You may look like Santa, but I, I, I feel like I am. That's true. Very true. Yeah. So uh, we are we are testing out a new a new platform. So, you know, with, with all the uh, shenanigans that COVID has produced over the last two years, uh, we, we were on a major hiatus, but now we have access to a new recording platform that doesn't necessitate us or our guest from being in the same room together so we can uh, continue on with the show and not expose each other to some deadly virus. That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, so our inaugural show back, we have our perennial guest, uh, Jim Turner, who is uh, a... Well, you know, we just talked about Big Jim Griffith, who is the community's folklorist. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, tall tales that that Big Jim talks about. So Jim Turner is the guy that corrects Big Jim mm -hmm. and tells us what the truth is, what can yes. be factually uh, sussed out of all the documents. And, and uh, with some type of certainty, uh, we will know know that what, what uh, truly transpired in uh, the history of our great community. So, Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Fred. I'm glad to be here. And I almost, uh, we were chatting before and I almost chimed in that Jim and I used to belong to a lunch bunch. And, and about the third time I went there, and I had just started working as the historian for the Arizona Historical Society. He says, Jim, your job is a lot tougher than mine. You have to tell the truth. <laughs> and that's Jim for you. Um, yeah. And he says, all I have to do is publish what people tell me and uh, and various varieties of the story. But I am a stickler for uh, specifics. And if you don't have your citations, if you can't quote your sources, oh, we have another guest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I am working out of my office, so we do have visitors coming, coming in and out every once in a while. There we go. Yeah. So the truth, the truth, I guess, is important. <laughs> Well, I tend to think so. And, you know, I got my master's in history and that's almost the Hippocratic Oath, you know, for a historian with certified by the University of Arizona is that 
you know, you pretty much do have to, the truth as well as you know it. I'll tell you, somebody just sent me an article I wrote, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago about the Apache kid. And then he sent me the coroner's report on the sheriff that I thought died of a heart attack chasing the Apache kid. And uh, he was actually shot. Uh, the sheriff was shot by some of the Apaches that were escaping. And so whatever you put in print, you know, and I thought it was factual when I printed it, but history changes as we get more information. I don't know who found the coroner's report from the 1880s, but uh, it turns out there's a whole bunch of guys that are fascinated by the Apache kid. He was kind of the latter-day Geronimo. He was still out there in the 1890s, and nobody's quite sure when he died, but he was kind of like went into Mexico and disappeared and would come back. And I think the last time he did anything was 1905. So what was his real name, Jim? Huh? What was his real name? I can't pronounce it. It's, it's, it's an Apache name and it's been a long time since I've studied that. So I can send you the article. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah. That's a heart attack. Yeah, it was a it was a Globe newspaper that I wrote for back in the day when I was still at the Historical Society. So I know it was more than ten years ago. It was probably more like fifteen years ago. But oh, that's uh, cool. Yeah, and he's from Globe, and up in Globe, they kept uh, the Apache kid in the Globe Jail, Pinal County Jail, Gila County Jail, and then they were transporting him to Florence, where he would then get on the train and they'd be sent to Yuma which evidently was a death knell because they put them in all in together and they all got tuberculosis. You know, they had a special wing for Apaches and, and they were really susceptible and it was a highly contagious disease. So, wow. Yeah, I know. Wow. Yep. You don't think about I mean, aside from your good looks, the the reason we have you on the show is to uh, teach us all about the history of our, of our uh, great, well, of Tucson that we're mostly interested in, but, but yep. obviously, uh, you know, the great state of Arizona, we just celebrated our centennial uh, a couple of years back. Yep. And uh, and maybe this is a trivia question that, uh, I mean, for us old old hands, we know the answer. Or maybe Jeff doesn't. But uh, we are, uh, our, our uh, centennial, our, our, what's the word? When you're brought into the... Uh, the United States as a new state when we were when we were granted statehood by uh, by U.S. government, uh, it was on a special day uh, yep. that that occurred. Oh, Jeff knows that. I'm sure he knows that. Hold on, I'm trying to look it up on the intranet. Yeah, right. The, the uh, uh, here's a clue. We are known as the baby state and the Valentine state. Oh yeah, we were born. Or the state of Arizona was inaugurated in February 14th, right? That's correct. And it wasn't supposed that. to be, but uh, Taft was doing a campaign thing up in upstate uh, or New England or something on the on the 12th, and they said, "Oh well, you can do it when you get back" or something like that. I can't remember exactly, but. Uh, basically, and that's when my first book came out was for the centennial in in uh, in uh, 2012. Well, that's where that's where I was getting to because you know when when the uh, centennial occurred, you created this wonderful coffee book, coffee table book, yeah. uh, and now now that it's uh, what eight nine years later, um, we have a, a uh, uh, I got a, a, a up version 
a, a retelling yeah. of the tales? It's, it's a second edition, but that's tricky because it's got 20,000 more words and it's got about a hundred more historic photographs, not as many scenic ones, which was like uh, for a coffee table book. I'm holding it up now and you can see that it's a different size. It's uh, I believe five by seven, but it is because I had 20,000 more words and the original was 60,000 words. So that's 25% more data. I was able to put in a whole lot more and uh, one of my favorite things is I did a biography of Frank Luke. Jeff, there's another trivia question. Who Frank is Luke? Luke. Yep. And Lukeville, Arizona is named after Frank Luke. Oh, oh very cool. Yep. But Frank Luke was at one point the leading air ace, flying ace in World War I. Uh, he had about a three week to a month and he, he shot down 18, most of them balloons. So they called him the balloon buster. And he was from out there in uh, by Buckeye. And his parents were German immigrants. And he said, I've got to join the war and make my mark. Because it was so anti-German. You guys would have been in big trouble. Um, uh, we're Hispanic, uh, just so you know. That's right. Exactly. Except for Frederick. <laughs> yeah, Fred is Fred forgets the Hanover Frederick, Germany part. Came to Mexico from Germany in 1844, right? Right. You know, you know, I want to know no, more no, no, about No, 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 no. No, he came from Sonora, Mexico to Tucson in 1884. That's Federico. I'm talking about the dad. Federico yeah, Augustus, dad Frederick Augustus. Yeah, Frederick Augustus. Hey, I'm reading an article in the Arizona the Daily Arizona Silver Belt. Okay. And it says a perennial office holder. Henry Thompson is a perennial candidate and office holder, first appointed sheriff over 20 years ago when Sheriff Glenn Reynolds was killed by the Apache kid. That's right. Yep. And the, the guy that I thought died of a heart attack was uh, his name was Holmes and he was a deputy and they called him Hunky Dory Holmes because he had this poem when drunk, he would report, he would uh, repeat this poem. And uh, it was Hunky Dory Holmes that I claimed had been, uh, but Reynolds, same deal. Yep. Yeah, and, that's cool. Uh, and that that's from an article of the Arizona Silver Belt out of Globe, Arizona, from October twentieth, nineteen oh eight. Right. Yep. That's that's what I'm saying is that, and that Silver Belt goes back probably, and you can get them online, newspapers.com, so you can read the whole history of Arizona from eighteen sixty four with the Prescott Miner. Uh, those are all online. And I've, I've showed people how to do research that way. And Ben, when I did it, it was all microfilm on reels and you had to thread it in the basement of the U of A library. And now it's just oh, like, gosh. I'll just look it up tonight or while we're ch chatting. Isn't that funny? Yeah, it is. So, so go, go ahead, John. Go ahead, Fred. Go ahead. No, Jeff, go ahead. So the this gentleman, the balloon buster, yeah. That uh, Lukeville was named after. Yep. Very I'm sorry, finish handsome, your story about him. Handsome young man. And uh, my dad and I built, my dad was born in 1916. So in 1926, he's 10 years old or, or 27 when Lindbergh flies the Atlantic and everybody gets the model airplane, biplane craze. So we would build these model airplanes and he would tell me about Eddie Rickenbacker and the Red Baron and Frank Luke, the balloon buster, because Luke uh, 
would shoot down the aerial observation balloons, which seems like sitting ducks, but they would have, the Germans would have a squadron of planes around that thing. So to get in close enough to, to uh, shoot down the balloon and then get out again. And on his last spree, it lasted about four days and uh, one of his friends had been killed. So he just went on the rampage. He took out a plane. He brought it back all beat up. They said, don't go back up. He went back up and he went, he did this. He defied them. You know, he just kept doing it. And I think probably a dozen of his kills were in that one week. And uh, that's all in the little biography that I've got. And I did one of Big Mike Goldwater, uh, who was started a store in the gold fields in 1857. And that's what and then he went to Prescott when they discovered gold in Prescott. And uh, they called him Big Mike because he was he was six foot two, Polish, Jewish and six foot two in the 1850s, which would have been a very big man for any culture. But um, so Royal, I think it's no Baron Goldwater was uh, was Barry's father. But uh, they started the store in Prescott. And then in 1889, I think somewhere in there when Phoenix got to be bigger than Prescott, they started the store in Prescott. So that's three generations of Goldwaters. But I wanted to do, and I did Barry, and I also did Sandra Day O'Connor and a woman named Nellie Cashman. She's known as the Miner's Angel because she had boarding houses in, in, in mining towns like Tombstone, but she would always uh, go around with like a tin cup collecting money to build a church and a hospital every boom town she ever got to. And then when she finally died, she wound up in a hospital that she had built basically 50 years earlier up in, in, uh, in Washington state. So she's wow. just one little Irish woman, but she went out prospecting as well. So it's a really nice way to tell. And I have a lot more of that kind of story, not as many lawman, gunfighter, Apache stories, but more of the, uh, um, the, the unsung heroes. You know, I do have the code talkers and, and others, but I've got a lot of stories that people, well, the, the high jolly, the camel driver, you know, most people don't know about that guy. What's had, the story of that guy? We had, uh, um, let, me, let me, before you start the story, is, does this have anything to do with how camels were introduced into the region for the cavalry? Yep, that's exactly what it is. And mistakenly called the, the Camel Corps, but there are a couple experts. When you're in the business, you wind up talking to the guys that are experts on this and that. And uh, I sent my manuscript to a former director of the Historical Society, Andy Wallace, and he'd written a book about Arizona, and he was just livid. It was not called the Camel Corps. It was just one experimental expedition in 1853-54, and uh, starting in the 1830s, there was a, 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 a supply sergeant, or maybe he was a lieutenant, but he got the idea, hey, if, if camels work in Egypt, why don't we try them here? And it took him uh, almost 20 years to convince uh, a senator from Mississippi. And then when that senator became the Secretary of State, then he was able to you know, go to Congress and say, we need to get these camels. And the Secretary of State in 1853 was Jefferson Davis, 
So we have this very strange connection between the president of the Confederacy and the Camel Corps. So they went over, they, they, they hired this guy and uh, his name was, well, he had, his, his name originally was Filippo Teodoro and he was half Greek and half Syrian. And, uh, but then he went on a pilgrimage to Mecca, the Hajj, they call the pilgrimage. So he changed his name to Hajj, Haji Ali. And then when he got over here, the soldiers called him High Jolly. And there is, High a, Jolly. There is a movie called Homps made in the 70s by the makers of Benji and some of those other uh, Grizzly Adams, that kind of stuff. And so they made kind of an F Troop movie about Homps, you know, with even pie fights in the damn thing. But oh, uh, I, that, that's that's I remember that very clearly. Vaguely. Oh, OK, good, good. Yeah, good. yeah, yeah, yeah. You had no idea it was a real part of Arizona history, though, I bet. No, I, actually, it's it's funny because when they made that movie, when it came out, there were a lot of news stories okay. uh, specifically about what had happened. And I remember being at, at uh, St. Peter and Paul, and uh, uh, one of the history teachers was really gung-ho about oh, sure. uh, yeah, that, we that are, story. We like that kind of anomaly. And the thing is, when they got... They crossed uh, Arizona. They 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 blazed a new road called the Beale Wagon Road after Edward Fitzgerald Beale, and uh, that road then became the railroad route across uh, northern Arizona. And then the railroad route, they the the surveyors followed the same thing to blaze Route sixty six. So when you are behind La Posada Hotel on Second Street, um right by the uh, standing on the corner in Winslow, Arizona, the camels went right up that road. That's where the camels went. And then Route 66 went right through there, same place. And then, of course, when Interstate 40 came, they're like five miles north of it. So that's when everything got abandoned. But yeah, you can actually stand. And at the back of La Posada, one of the co-builders of that, um, he uh, Dan Ludzik, he went to California. He found this big metal, rusted metal sculpture of a camel. And it's right in the back parking lot of La Posada, right where the camels were. So, and you can buy t-shirts with the camel on them and all of that stuff. They got all the way to California. It was very successful because they can hold like, I don't know, a thousand pounds on the back of a camel. And they can indeed go long distances without water. But um, and they didn't have any trouble with the rough terrain because you find them in Afghanistan. It's not just sand where they can. That was one of the things that why they thought maybe they didn't work. But in I don't know, I think it was 58 or maybe. No, it was probably 1860. We had a new commander in chief of the army and he said, I'll be damned if there's going to be camels in my army. <laughs> and uh, so he decommissioned them. But I have a photograph in my new wow. book of a camel at Fort Drum, Los Angeles. And that's not been in any Arizona history book before. I found it in uh, in a book about Arizona photographers, A History of Arizona Photographers by Jeremy Hall. But uh, yeah, it's just really cool, you know, that you've, I found this photograph and I thought, wow, this is living history here. This is like nobody knew this photograph was out there. And now anybody that buys the book can, can see cool. camels. So you're, deb- 
you're debunking old uh, old myths, old stories as well. All the time, all the time, and then they come around and debunk me afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> That's just kind of the name of the game, you know. That guy, well, I went to this history club on Tuesday night, and the guy, and and he got done with his his talk about the Apache kid, and I said, "Is it true that?" Hunky Dory Holmes died of a heart attack, and he's absolutely not. And he said, I can send you the coroner's report. And the next day, he sent me the coroner's report. And I went, oh, man, you know, you, you do the best you can. You find all the data that you can. But now, like I say, with the old newspapers online and all the documents, like, I don't know how the records of the coroner from Gila County wound up. Uh, somewhere where you could actually find them. But it's that's how we found most of the historic photographs that have never been published before, is the Library of Congress has a lot more stuff up there online that you can browse from. I mean, if you knew what, what folder to go to before, you could find it. But now you can just go through and say... Um, Indian schools, we got this wonderful picture of an Indian school art class where they have a model posing and they're all doing portraits. And you just don't think of that. You think they're going to do arts and crafts. They were doing fine art portraits and you can look over their shoulders and say, well, those are pretty good. You know, they did real paintbrush uh, standard art. And, but when I, my editor found that picture and when I saw it, I went, oh man, this tells a whole different story of Arizona history. You know, they're not just uh, making moccasins and, and uh, learning beadwork, that kind of stuff. They Did you like, just say oh. making moccasins? Yeah. Uh, the American Institute for the American Indian in Santa Fe, uh, they taught them how to do beadwork. Um uh, and really fancy beadwork. I mean, they did some before they got there, but that was uh, Herb Stevens, who was the, he's part of Apache, and he was the director of the Chiricahua Cultural Center. And uh, he won prizes for his beadwork at, he attended that American Indian Art Institute, I think it's called, AIAI. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, they, 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 they were teaching them the same crafts that they already knew, but also they were teaching them fine art. But we, nobody, you know, you don't see any, any portrait paintings done by American Indians because that wasn't what was in the market. We wanted pots and blankets and jewelry. And so that's what the Harvey Company got in there. And, you know, but they, they had the capability of doing paintings and, uh, and they did that kind of stuff. Jim, I've always been curious, you know, Fred and I have known you for a number of years and enjoyed the stories, the history that you've shared with us. But how does a guy that has been a historian treat or, or look at today versus yesterday? In, in other words, are you what 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 are the similarities between today and the characters today and what you've written about and and you know done research on from 100 years ago or 50 years ago or you know do you see any similarities I don't go there at all I got into history as an escape and it's worked very well <laughs> Really 
So, I, don't know. So, I just don't get into the future. And I'll tell you, my, uh, my publisher for the first book, they wanted me to do predictions. Oh, and, really? Uh, and most historians complain about that because they say, as soon as the ink is dry, your predictions will be, uh, will be disproven. But uh, I, I do. And this is the thing is that uh, water has always been a problem in Arizona since the, the Hohokam disappeared, uh, probably because of a 300 year drought. And so that's the big picture. And yes, I do. And my editor said he was editing the book and he says, you've already talked about the water problem back in that other chapter. I said, I'm going to talk about the water problem in every chapter because that is something we will always have with us. I don't know, unless some, you know, back in the, uh, uh, in the, the Clovis culture back in 12,000 BC, um, the Clovis culture? Clovis was, uh, they found the remains of spear points in Clovis, New Mexico, in about 12, uh, and they dated them to 12,000 BC. And Arizona was this tropical swamp back then with a whole lot of water. And it didn't change until about 2000 BC. And then we had to deal with the dry climate. But back in those days, and so, you know, Give us another 10,000 years. Maybe we won't have a water problem here. But right now, that's what I write about. And that's that's in the last chapter. Uh, and I also talk about the growth of the Hispanic culture. And in 10 years ago, I did that. And that has been predicted to be, you know, we have a lot more representatives, political representatives that are Hispanic now than we did 10 years ago. And, and what's amazing is 100 years ago, the vast majority of our representatives were Hispanic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think it would be more than a hundred. I think it'd be more 1860s, 70s, that kind of thing. Yes. But by the 1900s, uh, not quite so much. It, um, it flipped to uh, um, Anglo Christians or Anglo, you know. Anglo- well, the other thing is uh, at the turn of the century, 19, uh, 1900, the uh, Hispanics were Republicans because uh, the Democrats in Arizona were Southern Democrats and they were like, uh, you know, Texas and, and uh, they were basically Anglo. So if you, and they were, they were party bosses, you know, you had two democratic parties, you had like the Chicago and the Tammany hall type Democrats where you've got a a boss that gets everybody in there and, and the spoils and all of that. And then you had the Southern Democrats, which were, you know, uh, a whole different ball game. But uh, and so the Republicans were I mean, the 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 in order to get elected because they couldn't they couldn't fight the Southern Democrat, you know, the party uh, uh, bosses because they weren't going to. Oh, let's put this Hispanic in there. So they went with the Republican Party. It was a smaller party. And uh, and they they got into office because, you know. They're, they're running against. So, yeah, it was different. It was much different. Yeah, I, uh, um, I'll be curious. I'd be curious to see where Tucson flip-flopped, you know, went from a Republican Mexican culture yep. to a Democratic Mexican culture, or maybe if it's a total, it's a big mix right now. Um. Now, I would say that was probably uh, 1930s with Roosevelt, who uh, 
did a coalition of Italians and and uh, other you know non Anglo, if you will. Um, but uh, you know Roosevelt did that, and they were big for FDR. So I think that's probably when we got that switch. Interesting. And, uh, but I write. I've got a section in here called the Republican Ascendancy, which talks about when Arizona went Republican, the whole state. And that's an interesting story. They had uh, um, the, uh, the, oh, what was that called? It's the, the card table push. And, uh, and that was at the Adams Hotel. Uh, during the war, they had, uh, they had black troops stationed at Papago Park. And they gave them a Thanksgiving dinner and a lot of booze, and they turned them loose on Phoenix. And, uh, and there was a shooting, and there was some serious, and they brought out armored cars to get the soldiers back to the fort, I mean, to drive them back there. And, uh, and so the military officers at that point said, okay, you're not allowed to go into Phoenix anymore. And, uh, and the, uh, the Republicans were saying, well, you know, we've got to change the Democratic Party boss system. So they got, um, they, they went in, they had this meeting with the existing officers and said, you know, if you don't do something, we're going to get you out of there. And they made some changes. And, and, but in 48, they had a new good government league, a progressive uh, change. And uh, the young businessmen of Phoenix were saying, we've got to get rid of this corrupt Democratic Party boss government because it's hurting our businesses. And, you know, and so they elected city councilmen uh, who from this new Republican progressive businessman and Barry Goldwater was one of them. That's the first he held. So I was I was just winding it up to how. And of course, then Barry goes all the way to the top uh, presidential candidate. And it was all because of that Thanksgiving Day riot, they call it. And I have a friend who wrote a, uh, uh, a seminar paper on it, and she let me use it so that I could write this chapter. But I ran it by uh, John Talton, who was, had been a reporter in, in, uh, in Phoenix for I don't know how many years. And he also writes uh, crime novels, uh, detective stories set in 1930s Phoenix. And it's just wonderful. He goes to these cold case files, and anyway, John Talton is a, is a, is an expert on uh, the politics of Phoenix. And so I sent him my chapter, and he said, "Yeah, that's right on. You got it. That's exactly oh, good for you. Yeah. That's great." All right. Now, so you, tell us the name of the book again. Huh? Tell us the name of your book again. Oh, it's called Arizona: A History of the Grand Canyon State. And it's available Amazon anywhere. Well, it is at Amazon, but if you would like me to sign a copy, which means I get seven dollars more for the book than if you buy it at Amazon. If you would like me to sign and deliver a copy, uh, Jim Turner Historian at gmail.com. And I've already delivered one and I've got another order to deliver somebody else's, but also Rionuevo Publishers.com. I uh, know oh, okay. Rionuevo.com. And uh, so you can order it there. I don't get any more money. So go ahead and order it from Amazon if you want to. <laughs> but well, also, uh, if, if uh, people want to have you come out to their organization and do a presentation, uh, absolutely. Jim Turner, historian 
at gmail.com is uh, also the way yep. to get a hold of you. Yep. And you can also go to my website, which is jimturnerhistorian.org. And uh, that will have my email and it'll tell about the topics that I give and everything. And I am starting to go out and give talks again. Uh, starting last December, I started giving talks. And at that point, I had to have my temperature taken every time I went in. And, you know, but I've had all my shots except distemper. So I think I'm safe. So, Jim, just last question, because I know we, we, we're running out of time. We need to wrap it up. But what do you think history is going to tell us about this whole COVID pandemic? You know, that's what I'm, I keep saying. That's not what historians do. We don't predict. Uh, and uh, Mark Twain said something. We never have been able to find out where he said it, but it has been attributed to him. History does not repeat itself. At best, it merely rhymes. And so it is cyclical, but everything is like trying to predict the weather. I mean, you can't you can't control all the factors. I mean, who knew that we would get a president that was, you know, so different <laughs> to be polite about it. And I couldn't have predicted that. I couldn't have put that in the in the hopper. But uh, no, um, I what was the last major pandemic we've had in the United States. 1918 the Spanish influenza. And that was the year that the Student Health Center at the U of A was founded. And I wrote a history of the Student Health Center. And uh, so I got to read all the 1918 newspapers and all of that. But the scale, the population was so much smaller, smaller in yeah. those days that, you know, it's it wasn't the same thing. Um, you don't see any correlations. Well, yeah. Um, they had mask laws. <laughs> And they closed down theaters and uh, public gathering places. So, yeah, it was pretty much the same uh, stay away from everybody. But uh, it was just a few months in 1918. And then there was a resurgence the following fall. So that's another thing that's similar to this one. But uh, otherwise, um, you know, it's like I say, the, the, the number of population and Everybody was compliant in that one. There wasn't anybody saying, you can't make me do this. They were just like, oh, we have to wear a mask now? Okay, we'll wear a mask. You don't want us to go to dances or nightclubs or bars? Okay, we won't do that. And uh, so I think that's a difference too. So there was a lot more trust in our elected officials back then when they said, this is something we should do for the better of everybody. Everyone just said, sure, that sounds like a good idea. Well, and they also went with uh, with the medical experts. And now we don't seem to think that an expert at something has any more information than a guy, well, I think it was this way, you know, or I disagree with you. Well, not everybody. You, Fred knows what I'm talking about. And that's, that's what I get. Yeah, when I you have about. a million more voices out there that people yeah. are listening to, and they're all conflicting. Yeah. Well, and the media makes a big difference. I mean, we had a professional, well, they also, they, they did a whole lot of ballyhoo, but you only had a few voices out there and they would quote the doctors. They didn't say, you know, well, my brother-in-law says this, you know, right, and right. the guy I went to high school with says that. So I think that's what's real. And it's yeah. just how- My barber was talking to me the other day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jim- Thanks again so much. Uh, obviously, we're going to have you on in the future, but uh, uh, people should should reach out to you and, and uh, get a hold of this book, it, especially since there's now 20,000 
more extra, words. Extra words, yes. Extra words in the centennial I have a edition. Friend, I have a friend that said, why do I want to buy this one? I've got the first edition. You know, a second printing means it's the same print, the same book. A different edition means there's new stuff in it. And right. a lot oh, more stuff. So very good. That's the difference between a printing. And my old book went through three printings, but it was exactly... A, Although when you do a second printing, then you get to correct any errors that you found that got through the first time. You make a right. little collection of, oh, man, we got to clean up this photograph. But uh, a different edition means that there's new material or there's revised material. So it is a new book. It's really basically a new book. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jim. And, and uh, Jeff, uh, thanks for your time. And uh, hopefully Fred, I got nothing but time for you, Fred. <laughs> Fine. Whether it's smoking cigars, yeah, whether right. it's you know helping you pick up metal for your new welding projects. Oh, yeah. yeah whether well, you know, grab a couple of sticks and bring them over tonight. Yep. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. Talk to you guys later. Thanks okay. so much. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate you. How do I get out of this? Are you just uh, shut it down? You can. You're I in trouble know. now. <laughs> it's like a Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> 24 or 7 friend I'm, I'm stuck inside <laughs>